Hello and welcome to History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Samantha Miller, um, and I'll be interviewing her about her recent book with InterVarsity Press on John Chrysostom, Demons, the Devil, um, and Virtue in the Christian Life. Um, so I would recommend this book heartily. Um, I enjoyed reading it, and uh, Dr. Miller has a lot of insight to offer on the thought of, a, of, of Chrysostom uh, and exactly how the ancients thought about demons, uh, which is a topic that's a little hard and strange maybe for some moderns, but uh, it's, a, it's a very great uh, book and a good conversation, um, and as Chrysostom is very helpful. So um, I'm appreciative of Dr. Miller giving her time uh, for this interview, and uh, will be the next um, episode. I think is probably going to be another interview. We have a lot of interviews lined up, um, and so hopefully throughout the next uh, several months, uh, we'll be able to release those. Gavin Ortland, um, Philip Carey, my uh, one of my colleagues at SLU, uh, Laura Locke Estes. We got a lot of good stuff coming up, um, so stay tuned and. Uh, Please like us, rate us, and review us on iTunes. We're on Twitter now, uh, at Theology, X-I-A-N, um, and on Facebook, and lots of different places. Let us know what you think, um, and uh, thanks for listening. Well, welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. Uh, this week I have Dr. Samantha L. Miller, and she has recently published a book with InterVarsity Press called Chrysostom's Devil, Demons, the Will, and Virtue in Patristic Soteriology. Uh, Dr. Miller is the visiting professor Assistant Professor of Theology at Whitworth University in uh, Washington. Uh, she just recently changed positions from a uh, uh, from Anderson University, and um, yeah, we're I'm happy to talk with her today about John. Uh, well, I usually say I used to say Chrysostom. A friend of mine here at St. Louis University, she says Chrysostom. So I guess we could even just start there. How do you pronounce his name? Uh, either is completely acceptable. I <laughs> I grew up in in just well not grew up but like grew up academically just saying. Chrysostom. So I'm going to say Chrysostom all the way through, but I've noticed uh, that Brits and Australians tend to go with Chrys Chrysostom and Americans tend to do Chrysostom. So. Ah, okay. Yeah. Be um, Becky um, Walker is a friend of mine. She wrote a little bit on uh, almsgiving in uh, what I was calling Chrysostom, uh, but she kept calling Chrysostom. And so, yeah, so I, I think I might go back and forth um, a little like I, I did early on uh, with, well, I grew up hearing people say Augustine. Um, and mm -hmm. then when I was with uh, um, Father David McConey, who was my advisor, he said, um, he said, well, you're with the Catholics now, so you're yep. going to say it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. it's, not, it's not a city in Florida was his other line. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, well, so... Um, should I call it? Well, actually, I can edit this out. Should I call you Dr. Miller? Would you prefer Dr. Miller or Samantha in, in this conversation? Uh, doesn't matter to me. Okay. Um, I just want to be sure. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, well, uh, Samantha, can you tell us a little bit about um, John, who, who was John uh, Chrysostom and, and how does he sort of fit in overall Christian history? So John Chrysostom lives in the late 4th century. Um, he, he's born right around 347 um, and dies in 407. So he's the last half century of, of the 4th century. So at that point, Christianity is legal in the Roman Empire. And we've already had the Council of Nicaea and the Council of 
by the time he's preaching, by the time he's he's uh, in the priesthood, we've had the Council of Constantinople as well, where we get our Nicene Creed. And so they've sort of not only is Christianity legal, but we've we've sort of made the made a lot of the major strides in in the sort of the first development of theology and understanding who the Trinity is and, and how we understand how to talk about God. They're not by any means done, but the baseline has been established by the time Chrysostom comes around. Um, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, so Chrysostom is, uh, he wants to be a hermit, basically. He wants to be an ascetic. He, he wants to do this all, he's raised by his mother primarily, his father died when he was very young, and uh, his mother's a Christian, he's raised this way, and also gets an educate, sort of classical rhetorical education that all the elite boys would have gotten. And he's very good at it, and he goes on. Uh, <clears throat> when he finishes his studies, he wants to go live as a monk out in the mountains outside Antioch, and his mother does not want this. So he lives in sort of a small group, like a, like a home small group sort of learning from a holy man sort of thing. Um, anyway, when his mom dies, he does actually go and spend four years as a, as a hermit out in the mountains. But uh, it actually fasts so hard. He's a bit of an intense personality, which he brings into his asceticism. And so he like fasts and prays and doesn't ever sleep and doesn't ever sit down and all those sorts of things. Uh, but he does so much of it that he actually injures his health to the point where he has to come back to the city. And when he comes back to the city, uh, the people there, uh, they had this practice at the time of basically kidnapping people and, and ordaining them, like the people they thought would be the best for uh, for the priesthood, which sometimes I think would be a better way to do it still. So they, they in 386, they make him a priest, and then um, he becomes famous for his preaching more than anything else. That's his, Chrysostom is not his last name. It's uh, his nickname, the Golden Tongued. And so he's the golden mouth or the golden tongue, and he is known for this preaching, sort of like a fourth century Billy Graham, like people would come to hear him preach. And so he's known for this, and in so he's in Antioch, which is in Asia Minor, uh, modern day Syria, well, ancient Syria, Antioch, Turkey, excuse me, Asia Minor, Turkey. Um, <laughs> it's the middle of summer. Um, yeah, that's okay. Um, and then uh, in 397, he is ordained and appointed the Bishop of Constantinople. So he's like the head of the Eastern Church at that point. And as an intense personality, he likes to call out sin all the time from the pulpit, including for people who are there, including the Empress who's in his congregation at Constantinople. Um, and the Empress doesn't really like this, so she has him exiled. Um, and then there's some sort of big misfortune that happens and she calls him back. And, uh, and then he does it again, uh, and she exiles him again. And there's a lot more to that story. There's other intrigues and bishops and political stuff going on. Um, but the end result is he gets exiled again and dies on this second exile in 407. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's primarily a preacher, and he is, uh, in terms of Christian history, one of the greats. He's certainly the great on the eastern side. Um, he's sort of a counterpart to Augustine on the west. Um, and he's just someone we should know. He's someone who uh, does all of his theology in his preaching, and I think partly because of that is really good for just normal, everyday Christians who want to know more about who God is, because he's he's not preaching. He's not writing the super speculative theology that a lot of others are doing. He is taking his intellect and his theology and, and trying to get people to live the way he thinks God wants us to live. 
Oh, that's, that's very helpful. Um, th- so, you know, it's sort of interesting. We um, Part of the reason I've been doing some more interviews is I want to get uh, experts from other areas. So uh, we had um, Dr. Wicks, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Ricks, and we're going to have my friend Laura Estes, who's a PhD candidate, talk a little bit about Syriac Christianity. So Syriac Christianity uh, tends to be even further east. But mm-hmm. Chrysostom is always kind of a unique one to me, right, because he's, speak- he's speaking and writing in Greek primarily, but he's in that area, with, like in the general vicinity, I guess we could say, of where a lot of this Syriac Christianity is coming up. So what what is his relationship with uh, overall, like th- this uh, this part of Christianity called Syriac Christianity? Or um, yeah, so how, how does he fit into that part? Yeah, he is really border. So certainly when once he's in Constantinople, he's firmly head of the Eastern Church, and it's it's he's not much in the Syriac that point. Although we have translations of Chrysostom into Syriac. So we have that he has definitely made it among the Syriac Christians uh, or Syrian Christians. But when he's in Antioch, he's, I mean, he's in Syria. And so he, he is only writing and speaking in Greek. And that's just the language of the place in the area and, and sort of the institutional bit of it where he is in the churches where he's preaching. Um, but he does get he gets taken over by them. He's not so much going to preach to Syriac Christian or Syrian Christians, um, and he's not. We sort of separate him out from uh, Ephraim and Avrahad and and the rest of them. And, and Christum is well. On the one hand, he's he's a little bit less poetic than Ephraim or whomever the Syriac Christians. But he's not he's not so far removed from them. You're right. But we don't ever treat him as as in a similar category yeah well and and as uh, people who've read their new testament will be familiar antioch is the first place that christians are called christians so it has this long and storied greek uh history and ref, you know it is a stronghold of christianity um in greek it just also happens to overlap a little bit with this with the development of the other language so anyway i just found that to be kind of an interesting because uh, chrysostom is sort of unique to me in that he can kind of um, in some ways, he seems like uh, he's more like the Antiochenes, uh, but he has great influence um, in the in the sort of in the Greek East and that sort of uh, not exactly Alexandrian, but he can be um, he can have his elements where he looks a little bit like both. And so anyway, he's just sort of an interesting figure uh, with his broad influence, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. I had another thought that's just disappeared from my head, but <laughs> yep, maybe I'll come back. And that's I like the connection to uh, to Billy Graham too. So that sort of brings him a little bit into the modern day. So what uh, what exactly drew you to um, studying Chrysostom and doing your dissertation on him and this book? And uh, presumably there's there's more to go. Why why is he so fascinating for you personally, or is it just more happenstance? No, uh, I mean I I fell in love with him in college. Actually, um, I I went to Hope College in West Michigan. And it's just an undergrad, primarily, you know, small Christian liberal arts school, very good one, very rigorous, and uh, was in just a really good religion program. And we also had a pre-seminary society. And uh, actually, interestingly enough, uh, Jerry, Dr. Jerry Sitzer, who is at Whitworth, where I now am, um, or who has just retired from Whitworth, where I now am, had come to give a guest lecture, give a guest speaking thing. And he spoke to our pre-seminary society at Hope. And he was talking about things that he was doing with uh, some of the pastors in his area. And he said, oh, if you really want to read a good book on pastoral theology, you want to read John Chrysostom's On the Priesthood. 
And I was the kind of student who went and got it from the library the next day and, and read it in one sitting and just fell in love with it. Just thought this guy, he gets why you should maybe be awed by your call and afraid of your call to ministry and that pastoring is not easy. And uh, as I was sort of wrestling with what it would mean to be in ministry is this, this call to ministry. So just felt a kindred spirit like immediately with John Chrysostom. And, um, and then in my religion classes, in my was taking a church history class and a, and a Greek class at the same time, I was reading Desert Saints in both of those and just sort of fell in love with this whole region, this realm, um, but especially Chrysostom, who I just felt like, man, I think I understand him. And I think he might get me. So yeah, sort of, and then never looked back. Um, I just pursued that all the way through and up through grad school and, and just found the kind of texts that I was interested in. So this book, what is the revised form of my dissertation and, and, uh, just fell in love with this passage, uh, that I work on the, the last chapter in, in the book. Um, it's a passage from his homily on Genesis about virtue and, and what it is and how we shouldn't neglect our salvation and how demons play into that. And so, Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, Hope College must be a great uh, breeding ground for patristic scholars because uh, Father McConey, my advisor, actually went there, although he's, of course, Catholic. Uh, he he loved Hope College. I think at one point almost returned there, uh, but he he really loved uh, his his time there as an undergrad. And I think it played it played some role in his uh, his decision to write on Augustine for his uh, dissertation. Funny. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's not what you'd expect. Uh, I know a little bit about Hope College. I've never been, uh, but you ne- wouldn't necessarily expect there to be a Catholic Jesuit uh, there at at Hope. But uh, but yeah, he he really appreciated it. Yeah. Um. Well, so the the book, uh, the revised form of your dissertation, but as just a very uh, readable and um, interesting book, I really appreciated uh, your the the sort of way in which you um, bring together some really. Um, important strands of thought in in Chrys- Chrysostom and Chrysostom, um, and in the theology of the of the general period. Um, so let's just uh, really uh, broad strokes. Can you give us a little bit uh, of a sort of a summary of the thesis um, and why uh, devils and demons are so uh, important for Chrysostom? Yeah. So. So the book is basically. I'm, I'm basically arguing that when. Chrysostom talks about demons, which he does a fair bit, um, more than some and less than others in his in his time period. Um, he when he talks about demons, he's primarily using them as a backhanded way of encouraging his congregation to be virtuous, and that's important because virtue is an essential aspect of salvation. System. So that's the that's like the thesis, and the ideas are about. Chrysostom is always is talking a lot about. Well, he's pretty much always talking about virtue. He's pretty much always talking about how we ought to live because he's a preacher, and this is where sermons end up. But he's also he's talks a lot about suffering, and when he's talking about suffering, he gets into ideas of uh, like all of his congregation want to say, well, the demons are, inter- are causing all of the suffering. And, and he's saying, well, you know, they're, they're maybe, and maybe not, but even, even if they are, that sin, that's part of you, that that's part of what's happening and causing suffering 
and demons are not causing the sin. And so what he's really doing is saying, every time you try and say, well, this sin that I did was because a demon made me do it, or the demon is the cause of this or whatever, um, that's completely false. He says, you have, and we can get into the terms a little bit more, but I focus especially on this term, the prioracist, the this faculty of choice, that every human has this ability in them, this piece that, that the devil can't control, that you can choose not to sin. Christians, at least, can choose not to sin. It's a little bit... I, I'm, I'm still unclear whether he means all humans can do this or if they have to have been baptized. Um, mm. what, what, like, how Christ forms, re-changes, reforms um, the, the prior races. But, but he's saying, you've got this in you. You can resist the devil. You don't have to be afraid of the devil. His, his baptismal homilies, when he preaches to the people about to be baptized, he's all the, all the time saying, do not fear the devil at all. You don't have to fear, fear hell, but don't fear the devil. The devil can't take you to hell. You will send yourself there. Um, and so that's his sort of, every time he talks about demons, that's what it is. He's saying, just remember, they're not, they're powerless. Demons are powerless. They can't hurt you. They can't do real harm to you because real harm is harm to your soul. And you're the only one who can harm that because you have this faculty of choice that 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 you can choose against the sin. And then you can be virtuous, so therefore you ought to be virtuous. And you really need to be virtuous because it's the thing we bring to our salvation after Christ has done all the, all the work. So that's sort of the, the basic idea. Interesting. Yeah, it just occurred to me while you were talking that some of the way that you uh, explore um, Chrysostom's use of the devil and demons reminded me a little bit of, of C.S. Lewis's uh, work um, and uh, the screw tape letters. And one of the things I believe he says in the introduction is something like, you know, there's sort of two errors that you can make when thinking about demons and the devil. One is to think that they don't exist at all. Um, and the other um, is to to like look for them under every stone. Um, so it seems like maybe uh, Chrysostom would agree with that, like tr this sort of a balanced approach to the demons um, and the these uh, sort of other, uh, not otherworldly, uh, but these spiritual forces that are working against us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although he wouldn't, no one in the fourth century was questioning whether demons exist. So that's the one is he wouldn't like, he's like, they're obviously they're there. They're just it's part of their world. It's part of their cosmology. It's just everyone, pagans, Jews, Christians, everyone believes that there are these, these demons out, these spiritual beings out there. Um, and they all define them differently, but they're all there. Like no one is worried about that. But yeah, he he keeps telling his congregation. He's almost got two pe two strands in his congregation. He's got the people who fear the devil overly much, and then he's got the people who sort of don't take them seriously enough. And so he's trying to 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 yeah find that middle ground and say yeah you don't have to fear them because you can do something about them, but you should also have constant vigilance so that you don't fall into their traps. And so that's the that's the yeah, and that's interesting. And, and that sort of ubiquity, uh, the, the omnipresence almost of, of demons in the minds of his congregation, it sort of made me think a little bit about how in the Desert Fathers uh, and a lot of the early monastic literature, they talk about demons all, like very frequently and about how the demons are sort of oppressing them and tempting them and all these sorts of things. And, and that's interesting that it's just as present in Chrysostom's preaching, because uh, that means so th those ideas and that sort of fight against the demons wasn't just just for those who had committed themselves to living in solitude in the desert or in the mountains or away from the city, but everyone sort of saw these demons. That wasn't the particular purview of just the monastics. Is, is that right? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and Chrysostom's program is basically trying to get all of his people to live like monastics, or <clears throat> excuse me, to live like the ascetics in the cities where they are. Um, his, he holds the monks up as the highest ideal of, of virtue, and then we should we should emulate them. But you don't have to emulate them out in the mountains. You should do it right where you are in the city in your life, um, with the exception that you can be married if you're in the city. Um, and so that is that is his big thing. And yeah, so Chrysostom is also really interesting. That was the other point I was thinking earlier, was uh, the place where he is more Syrian is in this, uh, his Syrian asceticism more than Egyptian asceticism uh, or Egyptian desert monks, whatever. Um, but that's neither here nor there for this point. But um, so he, his, his, um, his understanding of his articulation of demonology and anthropology in this this blend that he's doing is actually it's it's unique i think among his contemporaries because you've got on the one hand sort of origin a little bit earlier but then you've got the cappadocians much more contemporaneously and others who are doing more much more speculative work on demonology if if they're if they're talking about demons at all it's speculative but they're not really talking about origin does more of that but in terms of their theological anthropology and their virtue talk, it's highly technical, philosophical language, um, in a in a way that that differs from the the monks, the the desert sayings traditions, um, because that's exactly right. Chrysostom sounds just like the folks in the desert, the, these desert sayings traditions, and and they are casting their anthropology through demonology. It's, it's the monk is always, uh, you know, uh, David Brack's book, uh, Demons in the Making of the Monk, that the monk is the one who struggles against the demons. But Chrysostom is blending that because he's using the philosophical language like proiresis and nome and some of these other uh, terms. He's using those in virtue language, but then casting his anthropology in terms of demons as well, in that struggle against demons. And that he's the only one I can, I can tell is really doing that blend. Um, so it's both sort of high philosophy and lay lay people all at once. And it's, it's actually really quite fascinating. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I had never uh, thought too much about like the hard and fast distinctions between sort of Egyptian monasticism and Syriac monasticism. In part, that's because I'm not all that I've read more of the sort of the history of monasticism in Egypt or I mean, at least familiarity with like life of Antony and such. But I don't know the the Syriac tradition quite as well. So that that's sort of an interesting and helpful distinction that even in those, you know, you can't just say fourth century monks, you have to say like exactly which fourth century monks and how they're thinking about uh, these these things. And even monk is maybe not, you know, they're different kinds of monks and all of these things. Um, as you know, you dump it, jump into the history and you find out that uh, that our sort of simple phrases uh, kind of gloss over a lot of interesting distinctions. Oh, yeah. That's very helpful. Um, all right. So one uh, uh, so I, I one of my questions uh, was about the um, you, you talk about the uh, how Chrysostom understands the devil is that he has no power. And in fact, some of some things that we might attribute to the devil can be attributed to God. Um, can you talk a little bit more about why Chrysostom says this? Like, what did his his congregation? It seems like they were saying the devil's doing this and that sort of thing. But Chrysostom actually thinks that it might actually be God. So how does he make that uh, distinction and difference? 
Yeah, this is one of the places where I get real squeamish about what Chrysostom is saying. Okay. And like, I think, so I'm not, act, I'm not a pastor, I'm not ordained, but I, you know, I've done the internships, I went through seminary and, and I thought for a while that was part of my call. And, um, and I'm just, and I do preach occasionally and I just don't think you're supposed to say these things from the pulpit. <laughs> like they're just, this doesn't seem like great pastoral care. Um, at least not the way I always thought it. So Chrysostom will talk, so his congregation is looking around at, the suffering that's in their world. And it's, it's life is hard for all of us all the time. We're, you know, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. We have experience of the world not being in our control and the world, including suffering. Um, and, and it was no different then, right? There are plagues, there are famines, there are wars. There's like, life is hard there too. And so as he sees the suffering, people are, and they, in particular, where he is, there seems to have been a couple times where he's preaching in reaction to earthquakes that have happened. So like earthquakes are a natural disaster that happened where he are, where he is. And, and so he reacts to the suffering. His congregation seem to say, oh, the, the demons are doing all of this. Um, they're causing all kinds. I mean, it's the, the sort of perennial theodicy question, right? Why are these things happening to us? And... And Chrysostom is saying, yeah, it could be demons, but even if it is, God has given them permission to do it. And he'll go farther and say, well, not all suffering is caused by demons. You look at Job, like, yeah, the demon, the devil technically caused it, but God gave permission. And so God will sometimes cause things. And, and he's okay saying God caused that earth in his homilies on Lazarus and the rich man. He's got one where he says, yeah, God caused that earthquake to teach us, to bring us to repentance. To It's always pedagogical. When, whenever God is causing some kind of suffering, it's it's pedagogical. There's some way of trying to bring us to repentance, or there's some way of um, trying to encourage virtue out of that, or or he'll just say it just, or think this happens, and and it's not about who caused it, but about our response to it. How do you suffer nobly and with with patience and endurance and 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 virtue, and then you're vir- more virtuous because you suffered well. Um, so I get a little squeamish about some of that. He doesn't discount suffering. It's not like he's saying the suffering doesn't matter or doesn't hurt. Um, he is very clear about that. He can be, there are some places where he's surprisingly pastoral. Um, but he is, he's a little harsher than I think most of us would find comforting in some of this stuff. So what you're saying is we can't just reread his homilies uh, when our if if if, if you were a pastor we shouldn't just reread his homilies to our uh, congregation who's struggling necessarily. No, I think you should read them in your study and then and then decide what is helpful to pass on and what is less helpful to pass on or how to think about you know use it as an engagement in these questions. I mean, how do we? Because because the question sort of so uh, the book I'm just finishing up now and, and sending off to a publisher is sort of taking the conclusions of, of this first book and putting it in conversation with Christianity in, in Africa, actually modern Africa, and questions of suffering. So the the people who are answering questions of suffering, they basically want to say, well, who's causing it? Is it other humans? Is it the devil? Or is it God? And those are really the three possible choices. No one no one in the circles I'm reading. I mean, they're. There's also a, an answer sort of in modern theology that talks about natural evil and the world is broken and so things just happen. But but the people that I'm reading in Chrysostom as well, it's basically that those are your options, humans, demons, or God. And mm-hmm. and where most people are not okay attributing this evil or the suffering, not, not so Chrysostom's other piece is that suffering is not evil because it does not harm your soul. Only you can do that. So as long as suffering is only physical harm, 
it's not actually harmful to you. And so because that's the distinction he's making, he's okay saying God is causing the suffering because he's because God is not causing evil. God will not cause evil for Chrysostom, but it's the way he de- defines suffering that, that makes him say, yeah, it might be God who's doing this, but it wouldn't be God who, who caused any evil. Yeah. Yeah, that, that it was one thing that struck me and still does strike me um, about uh, the way that, uh, you, you know, Chrysostom and others will talk about this, you know, God's role in suffering. Um, it does it does make me squeamish as a modern, too. Uh, but it, it's it's sort of interesting. I mean, I, I wonder sometimes I think like a lot of our um, like as we're doing this, you know, historical, um, in some cases, retrieval, but at least um, looking back historically at a different age and a different period, I, I wonder how much our sort of modern presupposition that everything is good and everything is, you know, we're basically we assume uh, that, um, you know, we have this question, the, the theodicy question is why do bad things happen to good people? Um, and sometimes like, it seems like when you're reading Augustine and I was actually just looking at something in book 19 of the city of God, it's almost a more interesting question is why is there anything good at all? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and so if our paradigm is to think that everything's already good and everything is already healthy and you know we're naturally just good and all this um, the fact that there's even something evil seems strange to us uh, because we are so you know we have generally a lot of comfort in in modern american life or you know modern and and sort of a wealthier society overall um and but in the ancient world maybe that wasn't the case and so in that way you could sort of it seems less uh, threatening to uh, attribute it to god because that's sort of the natural state seems much harsher. I don't know if that's fair or not for, for Chris Austin, but that was one thing I was sort of thinking as to how he could uh, attribute that kind of thing to God. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, But yeah, I think there is a difference in mindset, right? Uh, You know, one of my teachers would always say as historians, we're not, you know, the people in the, the picture, they're not just people in funny clothes. They actually have different mindsets also. Right. And so this would be an, an, an instance of that. We can't just assume that Chrysostom saw the world the same way that we did in all the ways. And I think it's true. I think their their reality, we have man, with largely with technology managed to convince ourselves that we're in control of a lot of things we're not. And we just assume things are better than they are and that there's goodness. Um, I mean, Augustine is a little bit is going to be different on this because of his understanding of original sin and all of that that Chrysostom's just not getting into. It's just not on his radar. But um, yeah, that could be too. Yeah, no, just yeah, it is the it's the both the the fun and the um, frustration of being a historian. Uh, you want to get into the mindset of the other person, uh, but and the people that you're studying. But sometimes it can be really hard, and you can never yeah. be a hundred percent sure you have it right. But you could, you know, you, we've got the writings; we can get close. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. um so one sort of interesting point as as i was reading through uh this work uh was how influenced um chrysostom was by the stoics um and so like you know when generally when the christians the early christians are talking about philosophy um it tends to be that they view plato and uh plato's academy in a more positive light Uh, that tends to be the the 
you know, maybe the primary, I mean, Augustine specifically creates a hierarchy of the schools and always it's Plato is at the top. Uh, but, but it's sort of true, broadly speaking, in a lot of different areas of Christianity. But, but you focus a lot on the import of Stoicism um, for Chrysostom. So could you talk a little bit about that and why he found uh, the, the um, Stoic so compelling? Yeah, I don't know. We don't have anything from Chrysostom that is specifically, we know he's using anything in particular mm. um, in terms of philosophy. And, and he doesn't, like where Augustine will rank the schools and Plato comes out best, Augustine, or Chrysostom is always comparing the philosophers, Plato, Socrates, the rest of them, Aristotle. He'll compare them directly to the apostles and say they were, you know, the philosophers were idiots. That um, these unlearned fishermen were way wiser and they had it together and they had the true philosophy. And so, if anything, he uses them more uh, derogatorily and, mm. and as foils for the true philosophy and the true understanding. But he was trained in classical education. So he knew all of, he would have known all of the, the schools of thought and he would have known the things and um, and parts of it get in the water, sort of in the water, right? Or in the air. And so he, he once or twice will use images of the, the charioteer for reason and stuff like that. But he doesn't really, there's not really a place where he'll say, I'm using this stoic concept now, or I really like the stoics for this. He just, he just appropriates what's helpful. And I think for him, it's the what the particular resonance is with the Stoicism is these categories of true and apparent harm, which is how he then distinguishes his suffering from evil. I'll say suffering is is apparent harm, not true harm. True harm is harm to your soul. And, nothing, and anything that doesn't actually harm your soul is only apparent harm. It's still suffering. He's not going to discount that that it's not good. And like he'll, his letters to Olympias when he's in exile are all full of all kinds of his own suffering. So he knows what he's talking about. He's not, he's not deluded that life isn't hard. Um, but, but he uses that category to say, yeah, there's, there's true harm and there's apparent harm. And it, and then it's this, again, that, that pro-iracist, that faculty of choice in us, that, that is a big deal in stoic thought that he's taking and saying, yeah, this is sort of the part of you that, that, that you have control of, that is up to us, is sort of the phrase. And, and so we exercise that and we, we have to exercise that. So he's borrowing these concepts, but I don't know that he's, I think he's just assimilated them into his own thought. I don't think he is necessarily sitting down and thinking I, he wants to be a stoic or anything. I think he's saying, yeah, this seems like a truth that they got that seems to be right. Um, and this is the way we think about this theologically too. Yeah. Well, and just to follow up on that, uh, you, you mentioned it briefly, that thing that is up to us, um, that choice. Well, so you, in the, the book, you use a couple of Greek phrase, well, the specifically that whole Greek Greek phrase and then pro racist this idea of like of choice or self-determination. Um, so it, one thing that was struck me as you were explaining how that worked in Stoic thought, and then it's, it seemed like it was uh, picked up a little or uh, similar, at least to uh, Chrysostom, is that that place that you get to choose or self-determine, that is what make that is the self. Um, and so at least from a modern's 
uh, my sort of more modern perspective, let's say, um, it, it seemed interesting that that is what the self is. Um, that is the thing that is uh, sort of most identified with who you are as a person. Is that going too far? And um, how, how would Chris Hostum think about the self? Because it seemed like he was really placing a lot of weight on this, uh, this uh, faculty of self-determination. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's huge weight on self determination and this this faculty of choice. Um, and I'm using and and I do note in the book and and you sort of noted in your questions to me that yeah, I use the phrase self determination as opposed to free will because free will is so laden with baggage from Pelagian debates with Augustine that that I don't want to go anywhere near that because that happens after Chrysostom and also Chrysostom just isn't thinking about those categories and those debates. So I keep using self determination as like this this is we are self-determining creatures we are free um but i don't want to get into the original sin free will debates either um but yeah so so the stoics had this and it just sort of came up in a couple i think it was epictetus it could have been someone else um who had this this line where the self the priorities is the self and that's the the bit chrysostom doesn't really go that far himself um but I think if you were if you were going to think about it, part of it is hard because in that sense of trying to get back into the mindset of someone who lived 1600 years ago is I just don't, I, there's a part of me that thinks he would laugh at our modern conceptions of the self in all the like media and, uh, you know, TV and movies and things like that. And so part of me is trying to figure out, well, yeah, he would obviously be laughing at our conceptions of self this way, but what would he actually, what would he say about this? Um, I think he would, yeah, it's the part of us that can't be controlled by anything else. And it's the part of us that is free. And it's the part of us that, that we have control of. So I guess that would probably, he doesn't talk about it this way, but I think that would it would make sense to say, yeah, that's sort of the who you are, but not in the way we talk about who you are mm. today either. Like, because when we ask people, like when we ask high school seniors that, or I work with undergraduates, they're asking, they're asking that all the time, who am I? And and in some sense, the answer is, yeah, it's the choices you've made, and the choices you will make, and that that is like who you are as opposed to who anyone else is. But I don't know. I don't see Chrysostom having any patience for the way we ask that question today anyway. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting, like um, I th and the phrase that you use is the thing that is up to you um, and uh, epimon, I guess, uh, or epimine. Uh, I guess it's dative. Um, and so uh, the so that's the phrase that comes up. And it just strikes me as you were talking there, um, you know, and, and I guess as, as far as I understand the stoic outlook, there's very little that is, in fact, up to you. So, yeah. of course, that that is where the self is. Right. So so stoics are fairly famous for believing uh, in the, the necessity of fate and, um, you know, in some ways that that controls all that is. And there's sort of you have very little that you can control. So, of course, the thing that that you that is up to you is who you are not because of like you say some kind of question about like you know how uh, whether or not you're going to keep or reject what your parents taught you or you know like do you find yourself in travel or these sorts of th you know the things that a lot of us identify in the modern world with sort of um adolescence and late adolescence and that sort of thing but literally um if you don't even control some of the physical world around you and the events around you of course the thing that's up to you is who you are yeah 
Yeah, right. It, it's yeah, but it's <laughs> it's the the thing that you control, the thing that is up to you, and it is the choices. And and there is a way that we could that I could use that with my undergraduates and talk about yeah, what is the what are the things that are up to you, not just do you find yourself in travel, but like what did you do this morning? That is who you are. Right. And yeah. I think it's probably actually a better conception than the way we talk about it in, yeah, it, in sort of sappier ways. <laughs> it reminds me of one of my favorite uh, things that I've used in an intro to theology classes at so as part of our uh, fellowship at SLU. We have to teach intro to theology. And I usually end with the David Foster Wallace um uh, uh, commencement address where he talks, it's called the, this is water. Um, but he says that the, the, um, the most important thing is to learn how to think. And when you learn how to think you're, it's, um, the, the, how does he say it? So you have a million little unsexy decisions that you make every day. Um, and so he says that, that actually is the difficult and hard task of learning how to think. It's not whether or not you're, you know, become more liberal or become more conservative or these sort of like grand things. It's what you do, as you just said, what, like on a daily basis, a little unsexy decisions. How are you going to think about the people around you, the world around you? Are you going to be charitable? Are you going to be uncharitable? Are you going to imagine the best about them, the worst about them. Um, and he says that is actually learning the the sort of the cliche that we hear at liberal arts colleges, learning how to think. It's, it's not any grand thing. It's really difficult, little, small decisions. Um, and and I guess there, there could be some sort of stoicism um, even in uh, David Foster Wallace's uh, thought. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but uh, it's one of my favorite kind of, um, well, it is my favorite commencement address. Yeah, and I mean, and that's sort of where Chrysostom goes. With. I mean, that's that's his idea of virtue, right? It's every single moment: are you choosing the good or not choosing the good? It's the million unsexy decisions, and and so that is what I use with my undergrads a lot when we when we have these because I love. I actually have a class where I take them backpacking in upstate New York for a couple weeks, and it's just as great. But a lot of the campfires involve, and, and it's been a shift. Actually, I've been doing it for about ten years. And there's been a shift recently. They're asking the question, who am I more than what am I supposed to do with my life? Which is a very fascinating, I don't even really know what to do with that shift <laughs> and, and where our students are and what's going on in their lives and, and what we're going to get this fall when, when we're in the middle of this pandemic and everything. But, but that idea that, that who we are, I think I would agree with that, that actually that question of who we are is about these everyday decisions and not just learning to think, but even the this is who we are. And for Christensen, that's that's those are the moments of virtue. What if what have been your choices in every moment? And that will add up to your whole virtue, or your whole, you know, whatever your level of virtue is, or whatever, um, and who you are. Um, well, I, ha I have a couple different ways that that I could go with this, but let's. I'm not. I, I was going to take you down an Augustinian turn just because I can't help myself. But I'm going to I'm going to refrain from that because you've are I, I following your footsteps and lead in the book. Um, I wanted to get to the end of the book um, while we still had time because. It one the the homily that you quote on Genesis uh, eight or or well I guess is it is it on Gen no it's not actually on Genesis eight it's just the eighth homily in Genesis yeah um, is I think it's on um, like chapter two or something yeah um, is a really powerful um, homily um, and and that kind of becomes the um, 
it's a close reading of that text where you take take up the place of virtue in salvation. Um, and the so I'll just read a little bit from um, uh, Chrysostom here. So this is what he says, um, and I guess this is uh, your translation. Actually, is that right? Yes. Um, yeah. Almost, all these. Yeah. Almost everything in the book is my translation. Well, that. that <laughs> And another way that I was going to go was um, reading through uh, the translation of Chrysostom, Chrysostom in the uh, the Nicene and post Nicene Fathers gets really cumbersome yeah. because of the like nineteenth <laughs> century language. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so this is your translation. Uh, Therefore, let us not think too little of our salvation, for nothing is as important as virtue, beloved. For this virtue snatches us out of Gehenna in the coming age and gives us the enjoyment of the kingdom of heaven. And in our present life, it establishes us as superior to all those who attempt to plot vainly and rashly. Um, uh, and not, not only human beings, but the very demons as well. And it even makes us stronger than the enemy of our salvation. I mean, the devil. Um, so I'll stop there. So for, for Chrysostom, as you explained well, it's not just being virtuous so that, you know, you might live a good life or that uh, things might sort of go better for you internally or whatever. Uh, but actually, this virtue is connected to salvation. Uh, for Chrysostom's. Can, can you play that out a little bit? Uh, that might be, you know, I think I put this at maybe one of my questions toward the end, but that might be a little hard for modern ears. So how is it that our, our virtue relates to our salvation? Yeah. So this is one of the places that every time I write something about this, an editor wants a footnote about how this is not Pelagianism. And, and I always have, and I always, as, a, as an early historian, I always want to make some like flippant remark about how it can't be Pelagianism because Pelagius lived after Chrysostom. But, um, <laughs> you know, modern systematic theologians don't really find that yep. funny. But um, yeah, so Chrysostom's idea is actually fully in line with the Eastern concept of soteriology at the time. It, and, and still actually it's pretty, it's still what they, what they go with. And, and uh Catholics have no problem with this either. It's really post-Reformation Protestants who, well, well yeah, Protestants, right? It's, it's those of us post-Reformation who are on the Protestant side of it, who, and, and evangelicals even more so, because we're so, so ingrained in, in us, and especially anyone, so I'm actually a Wesleyan, but um, anyone from Lutheran or Reformed traditions especially are really heavy on the you cannot earn your salvation Thing. And this language in Chrysostom can sound like that. But what Chrysostom is saying is actually that there are two parts to salvation. There is God's part and there is our part. And he says God's part is, and God like does all the heavy lifting. God's part is the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, right? That that all of the major parts of salvation have been accomplished in Christ's work in incarnation, in cross, in resurrection. And that has changed us and made us able to be virtuous. Again, we were we were created able to be virtuous and we fell, right, with Adam and Eve in the fall and all of that. Um, and Christ has, has redeemed and renewed that so we can be virtuous. And so Christ has done all the major parts of salvation, but we still have to participate. And participation language works for me. I don't know if it works for everyone, but we participate in our own salvation. So when he says, don't think too little of your salvation, nothing is as important as virtue. It's that we are bringing our virtue. There's other places where he talks about, we bring our faith to, to, uh, to our salvation as well. But most of the time he says we bring our virtue. So we bring our virtue to our salvation. And it's, it's that 
it uses the image a number of times that uh, at our baptism, we are given a clean white robe to wear. And that was both literal, the bapti- those baptized would come out of the, the fountain, would be given a clean white robe. Um, and he's, but he, this is also metaphorically, he says, you've been given this robe, you need to keep it spotless. And so your virtue is keeping it spotless, um, keeping yourself worthy of the salvation that you have been given. And again, worthy is another one of those words that we get real squeamish about those Protestants of us, right? Um, we don't, you can't be worthy. You can't earn your salvation. He's not, again, he's not saying that, but you want to be worthy of it. You want to, to be worthy of what God has done for us. And that's the, that's sort of what he's going with. So it's a cooperative salvation and it's, um, it's, it's a uh, participation, but it's not that our salvation hangs on what we do purely. You can yeah. lose your salvation. Um, you can you can backslide again. I'm, I'm a Methodist, and so we, we can backslide. Um, but you you can't you can't uh, affect your own salvation. Like Christ has done the prior and more important work, and then we add what we can, what little we can, to it. Hope yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> well, it uh, hopefully that uh, I think at this point I, I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to um, release these, but I did a conversation with uh, Philip Carey from Eastern University, and he just wrote a book called The Meaning of Protestant Theology. Now, Dr. Carey is a philosopher by training and sort of a theologian in the end by practice uh, and without the sort of historical bit. So you and I are more trained in this historical theology. But one of the things that I think Carey gets exactly right um, about how Augustine and even uh, uh, the Cappadocians and others, how they understood salvation. Um, you know, we tend to, as you say, in a post-Reformation world, tend to think about salvation as the thing that is assured, um, right? So for Calvin, that's the most important thing. Do you ha- persevere into the end? Um, and can you be assured of that? Um, and that's sort of the, and it grows out of uh, Luther. Um, but but what Kerry says is he says that, you know, we need to remember that in Augustine, he actually saw this a similar thing to what uh, Chrysostom describes here, which is that salvation, you can't know that you will be in the end with God. Um, salvation is a thing that is given to you upon your death when you uh, achieve the beatific vision at the very end of all things. It's an eschat- eschatological thing. Um, and so it's, it's sort of the reformed that place this like odd emphasis on uh, being certain in the beginning and in the end and then doing nothing. Um, and, and so, you know, so anyway, I, I would recommend, uh, that, that conversation with, uh, Dr. Carey in our podcast to our, to my listeners. Um, but he, but you know, the, the Augustinian line is, is you are saved in hope, um, in spay, uh, not yet in re, not yet in reality. Um, and so it's, it's something that begins. And as you pointed out correctly, you know, this Christ does the heavy lifting and the hard work. Uh, but in order to, uh, persevere until the end for Augustine, you you have to keep on the path. Um, you have to keep your eyes tur- uh, uh, 
cast on Christ um, on the path and you can turn the other direction. Um, that is a, that is a possibility um, for Augustine and baptism doesn't necessarily ensure that you've kept your eyes on the prize for the whole time. Um, but, but because for Augustine, everything is a journey and a pilgrimage. Um, you can't say you've arrived at your destination because you're still walking there. You're not yet there. Um, so I, I don't know if you'd care to respond to that, but, but I found it really helpful and instructive, um, even from a more um, systematic uh, theological perspective. I think Carrie got that exactly right. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and I, I don't know Augustine nearly so well as you do or nearly so well as I, as I know Chrysostom. Um, but yeah, that sounds right. And that's, I mean, that's basically the ancient position in there. There are some variations on a theme, um, but this idea that we participate in that it is, and for Christendom, you participate now. Salvation is also about now. Um, you've been baptized. You live like it now. But that, yeah, that, that, that it's also eschatological. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's something happened with the Reformation, and and I'm like I'm not upset <clears throat> upset the Reformation happened necessarily, <laughs> um, but but I think we do. It does make it harder to get back to again get getting back to this historical mindset thousand years before the reformation and to yeah. what how were they thinking about salvation and how can we learn from that how can we think about that now even in the midst of this even in the midst of of our own tradition of reformation also right right well one of the things that i was thinking about too with uh, this uh, this homily was um you know as as we've been kind of talking about the difference between systematic theologians and sort of historical theologians uh, one of the i say that it seems to me that um for chrysostom one of the things that makes him so appealing is his rhetoric, but it also makes it difficult for to pin him down exactly. Like mm -hmm. we kind of want a hard and fast rule or a logical syllogism or you know something that can you know um, a little soundbite or something. Um, and Chrysostom's you know just. Um, rejects that at every turn, right? Because part of what he does, the reason that I wanted to quote him as well is because his, his prose, his language is so beautiful um, in part because it's, um, it's not, it's imagery rather than colder explanations. Uh, did you, do you find that to be the case? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's a preacher through and through and he's got letters and treatises. Uh, he's got a, a handful of treatises that are, that seem they're more cut and dry, but they're never going to be the Cappadocian. They're never going to be Gregory of Nyssa. They're never going to be Augustine. Um, most of his stuff are, are sermons. And so he, he's a, he's a preacher and he's very good at it. And that's why we he got his nickname and it's why he was, was told to keep doing it. Um, and I, I actually kind of like, I mean, it can be infuriating too, but I kind of like it because it is somehow, the, the imagery and the poetry of it gets into our bones in a way that that just propositions can't. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who's a professional storyteller who says that stories get past the bouncer in the brain. So when I lecture at my students, they glaze over a bit. But if I start telling them a story that's got some sort of, not a moral, but like something in the story that can, some truth there, it can get to them in a way that that, that maybe just a lecture can't. So... Yeah, Chrysostom is very much that. He's very much a preacher and uses the imagery and the poetry and um, poetry in a, I mean, he's all prose, but poetry in a, in a sense of imaginative preaching and speaking. Um, 
Well, yeah, sometimes with Augustine, you find that too, where we call them homilies, but at least for him, there'll be portions that just read like poetry to me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And where there's a little less, you know, that there's not quite a fine line between I am now writing poetry or I am now giving a sermon. For him, they all just sort of flow in and out. And it seems the same for, for Chrysostom. Precisely. And one one question that I had, uh, so you talked a little bit about your Wesleyan background, um, and as we were going through this podcast, we started by trying to read everybody from just after Paul, um, and and then just sort of go on from there. Um, but but one thing that we noted as we were going along is there was something similar to uh, the way that um, Clement of Alexandria and some of the um, you know early Greek East uh, theologians, the way that they talk and wrote, that reminded us of sort of modern Wesleyan positions um the sort of the idea of perfection and how wesley talks about perfection um and maybe you know you were just sort of talking a little bit about salvation and you use the phrase backsliding um it, could you talk a little bit is that do you find that resonates with uh, your understanding of wesleyan and and methodist theology do you find it to be in some ways closer to um some of the greek uh, patristic authors that you've read i do i do um and i might butcher this because it's been a while since I took took classes on my Methodist history and theology. Um, but Randy Maddox, I think he's written on this also. Um, there, there is some evidence, there's some, John Wesley loved the Eastern Fathers, and there's some, there's some obvious connections there as, as he was working out his theology. And, I, and I, it's been too long since I've taken those classes to be able to tell you what those connections are or where they are specifically, but when there sound like there are resonances, a lot of times it's because there are, um, because I think the, the Wesley's were, were highly influenced if, if not directly by them. In some cases, I think it's directly in some cases, I think it's through like the high church Anglicanism that they were coming out of, which was influenced by something else and back, you know, all the way back. Um, but yeah, there, if there's something like the resonances, it's because there are a lot of resonances, I think. Um, they're highly compatible. Uh, and, and in the direction of history, it's, it's the Wesleys who were picking up on those themes and the ways of thinking and the ways of understanding God that, that we had, that the Eastern Fathers had in particular. Yeah. One, and uh, I, one of my questions, and again, I, I recognize that you don't have, uh, you know, you're not really part of the reform tradition. Uh, but one thing that I thought I would throw out that was sort of interesting to me is, as I've done some reading on Calvin's reception uh, of the church fathers, that uh, he uh, he wrote a preface to a set of um, homilies from Chrysostom that he was going to translate into French. Now, what has been left to us in history is just the preface, and it doesn't. We're not. Uh, I think historians are not exactly sure how far he actually got. Um, but it seems that Calvin loved um, Chrysostom even more than Augustine. In fact, uh, when it comes to his uh, biblical commentaries, so Calvin wrote uh, commentaries on every book of the Bible. Um, but he's more likely uh, to choose someone like Chrysostom. Over Augustine, because he, what he'll say is he thinks that Augustine is excessively concerned with Plato, <laughs> and um, yeah. and it's it's this kind of funny uh, uh, sort of chastise uh, chastisement of, of Augustine. Uh, but I just thought that was pretty pretty fascinating. So you know I could hear some resonances to Wesleyan theology and Chrysostom, uh, but in fact uh, you know Calvin loved reading his his homilies. Yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I've actually taught a class on the history of exegesis, and so I've, I've just just dabbled a bit in Calvin's exegesis. And 
part of me, I mean, part of me wants to say, of course he liked Chrysostom better than Augustine. Like, Chrysostom is better than Augustine. But, uh, you know, we will, we will <laughs> yeah. always have our favorites, right? That's right. I've got, I've got a friend who thinks that, that Origen is way better. Um, but I, I wonder, too, if part of it is that Chrysostom's exegesis is way more grounded than, so we, you know, the, the now defunct, the now sort of um, unfound, we've, we've sort of decided the Alexandrian Antiochian split in the schools of exegesis is just not a helpful thing at all because they're all doing lots of different things. But, but, but Chrysostom and is, is more grounded in his exegesis than Augustine often. And, and I wonder because of Calvin's, super emphasis on well lucid brevity to begin with that's his phrase yep. but also um just his he's always trying to go back to the languages he's always trying to go to the intent of the author and i think he probably just resonates with Chrysos- the way that chrysostom is interpreting scripture and the things like um chrysostom is looking for the intention of the author um, now he's also not just the human author; he's also looking for God's intention. And but Augustine, or Augustine, sort of goes off into more allegory, more sort of slightly more speculative allegory than Chrysostom does. Chrysostom will do some, but it's there's a different feel to it, and it's really hard to to describe unless you've read them. Um, but I wonder if that's part of it is just Calvin was resonating with Chrysostom's groundedness and the sorts of things he also prized in interpretation as opposed to some of the I love reading Augustine's actually I love the particularly allegorical stuff actually but when Augustine is saying yes the 153 fish are because there are seven for the perfect number and ten for the commandments and you multiply that by three because of the trinity and that's why you get right like that sort of stuff yeah I just can't picture Calvin going in for no based on what he prizes and so I wonder if that's actually just part of what's going on yeah, but like I'll, Thomas Aquinas has this famous line where when he was dying, what he someone asked him what he wanted, he goes, I just really would love a copy of Chrysostom on Matthew right now. Like, <laughs> That's pretty good. I, I've not I've not heard that. I'll have to I'll have to use that. Um Well yeah, so um this was uh, very helpful for, for me uh and, and a great conversation. I, I had uh one close well actually maybe I should close with something more about Chrysostom, but I was also curious uh, who were the like you're you're talking about this book that you're working on with African authors on demonology and, and such. Uh could I mean would you be willing to share a little bit about that? Uh, what what exactly who you're reading? because uh, it sounded like modern African rather than ancient African. Yeah. So uh, I'm putting all the conclusions of this book we've just been talking about in conversation with uh, deliverance theology and the prosperity gospel in modern okay. Africa. Um, so did my best to, to span the continent and get voices from a number of different places, although they tended to concentrate in Ghana uh, more than other Ghana. And there's, there's some Nigeria and some South Africa and then, uh, you know, small scattering of others, but they tended to concentrate in those places. Um, but primarily these prosperity gospel and deliverance voices more than anyone else. And they are, it's this idea of, they're all also looking at the ideas of suffering and what's going on in the world and how do we think about this? And so uh, what do we learn? I'm trying to get at, they. so a lot of times in the modern West, we like to, we have trouble talking with 
our brothers and sisters in the global south because we think demons don't exist anymore. Um, and that's excluding the charismatic branches. They're, they seem to have a lot more ease talking with them because their their cosmology is much more similar. But for those of us in like mainline traditions, Catholics, Protestants, um, we just we we tend to not go in for demons anymore. And so it can be hard to have conversation. And so I was wondering, well, if we use Chrysostom as a bridge figure, who also sort of gets us away from a colonial project then, right? I'm not just saying, look, these modern, we are coming in and we're talking about it. Um, he's also letting us get around that just a little bit more and saying, look, he's similar to and different from both contexts in different ways. And so therefore can challenge and affirm both contexts in different places in different ways. So what is it, what would a conversation be to say, okay, well, Chrysostom goes in for a similar cosmology, a similar belief in demons, but he comes to different answers about why they're suffering and what demons can and can't do and all that. And as we explore those questions, what if we could actually have conversation about things like virtue, anthropology, soteriology, um, what does it mean to be saved? What, is, what does it mean to live in the world? Who's in charge of the world? Why is there suffering? You know, can we have any part of these conversations if we see what theological issues are at play underneath this initial, like, demons exist or not? Um, by, by putting conversation with someone who does believe in the demons and showing that even for, for Chrysostom, underneath all of this demonology is all of these other layers of connected theological thoughts. Hmm. So that's the Fascinating. idea. Fascinating. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds really good. Um, all right. Well, um, I, I was trying to think, I don't really have one question. I've, I've, I've asked most of them uh, that I was going to say, but anything else that you uh, like parting thoughts for uh, modern readers of Chrysostom and what we can, what we can glean from him, what we can learn from him. Uh, any, anything that you would, uh, would like to end with? Sure. Uh, I think the thing that we learn from this is that emphasis on the daily decisions that our virtue is ours and that um i mean we're looking around there's a lot of suffering in the world right now we're we're all pretty high i imagine very highly aware of what's going on and how how hard it can be and how devastating and, and it can all be but to to think with chrysostom chrysostom would encourage us to, to think beyond just this to say well how are we living within it and what can we do and uh, what choices will we make for virtue or for vice day to day? What are we doing? Um, I think he would say that's that's maybe where we need to be right now. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Samantha. I've enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure my listeners will will as well. Um, so um, 